I've got a real lag on your video. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of The Film File, the film show for isolated film geeks by isolated film geeks. And in this episode, I'm joined as ever by my right-hand man, my Robin to my Batman, my Bucky to Captain America. It's Andy Meekin. Hey, hey, hey. It did make you sound like a sidekick, and and, and that is really <laughs> disingenuous of me, as originally this was your show. <laughs> so in this week's episode, we've got, uh, well, we've got Andy's Oscar Challenges, which uh, I set him last week was the Clint Eastwood film Flags of Our Father. We've got another deep dive, which is Brandy Palmer's Untouchables. We're going to be talking about viewing parties, but as ever, we're starting with the news. Andy has been all over the internet because he can't leave the house, <laughs> trying to find any news, just any news that will keep you entertained and up to date. So how's it going out there, Andy, in isolation? I'm world? genuinely online more than anything else these days. Uh, yeah, I mean, isolation is... Again, after last week, we had a lot of news. There was a load last week. We couldn't fit everything in. This week, it's been pretty much lighter on the news. There's a lot of individual news, but a lot of it is very much the same, such as, let's look at Corona. So San Diego Comic Con, cancelled. That was no doubt going to happen. Um, whilst they're not saying it's cancelled, they are saying it's postponed until next year. So it's, it's cancelled. It's not a bit shock, is it, really? No, I mean, that, that much of a mass gathering this close to like the lockdown and although that america is bizarrely trying to get itself back to work as quick as possible by injecting bleach or whatever <laughs> sunlight which i think was uh, it was a blade reference personally um yeah i've been <laughs> obsessed with american politics more so than i have about movies over the last few weeks but that's another podcast for another time i think uh, yeah I'd, I'd, let's not get, get into the polit politics of it all Batman and Sopranos prequel have both moved. Batman is now October 2021 and Sopranos is March 2021. Will Smith's King Richard film is now November 2021. And already we're seeing the impacts on films that were due out in 2022, such as Shazam, which was set for April 2022, is now November 2022. And apparently the Flash movie has moved the other way from July 2022 to June 2022. This is the Flash movie that they promised us about 15 times already, so I'm not holding my breath until this one's in the can. This might not ever come to fruition. You know what? I can't ever see this happening, this Flash movie. If it does happen, it needs to be the proper reboot of the DCEU to start to get things onto an even track again. But I'm still not convinced on it. Uh, the Venom sequel has moved to June 2021. That was due out in October this year. Uh, it's now got a title. Have you heard the title? I have heard the title, but I really think you should ease the listening audience in gently. You know, given that in the comics world, we've had things like Maximum Carnage, Ultimate Carnage. Yeah, there's been loads of great names and great titles for big sprawling epics about this character. So they've given us such an epic name in Let There Be Carnage. It seems to me as though a 10-year-old came up with that one. Let there, it sounds like a toy line, doesn't it? Let There Be Carnage. Coming this autumn from Toys R Us. Let There Be Carnage. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I wasn't a fan of the first Venom film. I'm not a fan of the character of Carnage. I, I don't take to Venom as a villain. I think he's too two-dimensional. I, I, I shared a lot of the opinions that Sam Raimi did when he ranted about him, when he was forced to use him, that he's not an interesting villain. 
And Carnage is, if you take the two dimensions of Venom and make it one-dimensional, it's utterly, utterly awful. It's just like murder, death, murder, death, murder, death. Got no interest in this film. I still haven't seen uh, Venom. I was away when it opened. I never got round to it. I could have seen it on a plane. Wasn't bothered particularly about watching it on a plane. Always said I'd get round to watching it. You know, two years have passed and I'm still not that interested in watching it. I've heard too many mixed reports about whether it was any good or not. And the only thing I'm interested in about the sequel is Andy Serkis directing and seeing what he can bring to it. So I think Andy Serkis has got, A, a great eye for, for, for motion capture and could do interesting things. I thought his, his Mowgli was underrated, really, but he just came out. Again. I felt it was better than the Jungle Book. Yeah, I think it was just just a timing issue. Uh, and By going straight to Netflix, it sort of diminished it in, in a lot of ways. So I'm interested in seeing Andy Serkis's take on it. I think he, he'll do something interesting with it. But like you, he's, he's just not a character I ever, I've ever engaged in. I remember him appearing in Todd McFarlane's run on Spider-Man. I've never read any standalone issues uh, about the character. Carnage, I know even less about. The only time I thought Venom was interesting is when he inhabited uh, uh, Flash Thompson's uh, body and they went into outer yeah. space and joined the Guardians. But no, it's just not a character I really care about. Recently in the Marvel comics, they've been doing a Carnage crossover called Absolute Carnage. It's even that a better title, Absolute Carnage. But anyway, um, and that's that's all the um, Green Goblin, like Norman Osborn has uh, Carnage symbiote and he's the new Carnage. And it's still not interesting. I, the, the whole lot of the crossover is just turns me it turns me cold. Maybe you'd be interested if it was called Carry On Carnage. Carry On Carnage. Now I'll be up for that. Get get some of the old Carry On team. If, are any of them still alive? No, but you can you can CGI them now. CGI them in. CGI them all. CGI as a Kenneth Williams. Get um, what's his name from Red Dwarf to play Kenneth Williams. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Carry On Carnage. That's the future. Uh, Toronto International Film Festival is still going ahead, but in a more closed down kind of manner. And it's going to have a lot of it being, well, it's going to be partly digital, although the co-head of the Toronto International Film Festival, Joanna Vicente, doesn't know what it looks like, the digital side of it, how it's going to work, whether it's going to be a modified version of the festival. They are looking at the actual physicality of the actual festival itself, doing some kind of social distancing, maybe leaving one or two seats between each thing, so limiting the capacity of all the screens. But they're still very keen to keep the festival going ahead because it is quite a key festival particularly for your your smaller films, your indie productions, to get those prestigious recognitions that get a big distributor to pick them up for major international channels. On the latest of things going straight to video on demand, Scoob is seeing Warners following the example which was being made by Universal by going straight to video on demand on the day that it was supposed to hit cinemas. Reports coming from that have suggested that Warners are now rethinking the theatrical model in light of the current situation. And whilst they've doubled down and said that they still see the importance of cinema, things like Tenet, uh, they still intend for that to go like straight to the big screen. They don't feel that films like that should just go straight to streaming. It does lead the speculation as to will cinemas have the 12-week window that they've always kind of had in the past? It's an interesting premise because I can totally understand why a film like Tenet needs to go straight to the cinema because the way that Christopher Nolan shot it It'll actually work wonderfully in IMAX and it's and it's a big deal movie. Some of the smaller films, and I think Scoob is a smaller film, and I think would 
potentially have got lost in the summer. Same as like Trolls 2 was, which was Universal's one that they released on cinema release day straight to video on demand and did great business with. Yeah, and I think there's a market for, and a growing market for stay at home and watch and paying in this country, what, about £15 to watch a film as a family, which is cheaper than a family night out. So as a, as, a, as a business model, yes, I can see that. I think Chris Hemsworth points it out in an article I've just read, is that you want to go and see a Marvel film at the cinema because part of it is, and I've stressed this all along, it's a big social event. It's the experience. I mean, you know, the, the big blockbusters are not are not going to be impacted, except maybe that 12-week window. The worry with the 12-week window is that cinemas have always pushed back whenever a distributor's tried to go for a shorter window. They've always refused to screen unless they've got that 12 weeks. Cinemas are not going to have the firm footing that they've had in the past once this reopens because they're just going to need whatever product they can get for whatever time they can get it. So this is a time that it's going to become very distributor-led as an industry. What repercussions this will have for people like myself who work within the cinema chains still remains to be seen. It still leaves us a bit uneasy. Having the reassurance from the big distributors that cinema is still going to have some importance to them does mean you know, it, well, at least it's job security. <laughs> yeah, and I also think people will want to go out. I think accessibility is, is all we have at the moment. So we're judging everything on, on the situation that we're in. So maybe a film like Scoob would just actually do better box office figures just as a home release, because I, as I said, I think it'll get lost in the, it would have got lost in the summer. But a film like Tenant, a film like the Marvel films, uh, they are big screen. That's what the design's for. That's what the directors want. And if you're going to lose a, a director like Christopher Nolan, who's come out in the last few weeks and, and saying how important it is to get back into to, to watching movies, then that's that's the marketplace. And, and so far, Tenant's actually not moved it's, it's release date. Yeah, it's yep. not put a cancellation on that. It's the only one that has firmly stayed rooted to that set release date, not even shifted by a week. Okay, what else do we have then, Andy? If you were sharp-eyed and very quick off the mark, you might have had the chance to spot Bad Trip, the hidden camera feature film by Jackass producer Jeff Tremaine on Amazon last week. Someone accidentally activated it on the service and it was available very briefly before the mistake was spotted and it was taken down. However... It did remain on there long enough for someone to obviously spot it because copies have now been spotted out in the wild on pirate sites already. There's always a little scam. This isn't the first time that this has happened on Amazon, is it? No, it's not. And there was um, One Cut of the Dead got released on there unofficially. Yeah, it did. It did. Which, uh, I, this is not looking good for Amazon. At a time when distributors are starting to like really look at like streaming media as the way of them making money for Amazon, so, someone on Amazon to be flicking the wrong switches and activating people's films unofficially it's not looking good for them no somebody needs to be more careful and also put a big sign on that big red button do not press <laughs> kevin smith has finished writing twilight of the mole rats this is the mole rats sequel that he's been talking about for the past decade that was originally planned to come out in 2016 the isolation lockdown has given him nothing else to do except for write scripts so he's finally finished this one which will bring all the key players back together from the original and pick up where they are in their lives now and also look in that viewer skew universe kind of manner at the decline of mall culture. Because when mall rats came out, the shopping malls were huge things. I mean, even in the UK, malls had become a culture. Gr groups of kids would like hang out in malls. Nowadays, who goes to the shopping mall anymore? I'm a big Kevin Smith fan, or, or certainly a big Kevin Smith fan up to Dogma. Uh, I've got a very soft spot for, for Mallrats, the original Mallrats, which had Stan Lee in it, of course. Yep. He's had a strange career. I'm, I'm a... 
I'm a big follower of his uh, of his podcasts. He was on. I don't know if you've heard it. Joe Casada's got a, a a YouTube show at the moment, and Kevin Smith was on that. Great entertainment, well worth watching. Uh, and I, I just really like Kevin Smith. He's on my wish list of people I would like to meet. So if you're listening, Kev, top was a line. Let's zoom. I'm interested to see because I was very disappointed with Clerks 2. I know he's also developing Clerks 3. I've been disappointed with his film work. I know it's an individualistic voice and I admire him tremendously for that. I hope what he, he got right about Mallrats he can get right again. Also, the fact that he had a bit of money thrown at it as well gave it a, a, a better look and a better style. And I hope he, it's, a, it's a good continuation because I think it, Clerks 2 slightly fell apart in that second half. I think it started off great and then it went into that weird, do we need this subplot? Less said about yoga hoses, the better uh, as a film generally. So I, I hope I hope Malrats works. I'm looking forward to it. I've not. I didn't really enjoy uh, the Silent Bob reboot movie. I, I don't know. I, I I like Kevin Smith a great deal. I'll, I'll say it again. But some of his work just has not connected with me as much as he did his early work. I watched his recent Jane Silent Bob reboot. I quite enjoyed it even though I knew it in my heart that it was a load of rubbish. Um, it yeah. was very much fan servicing. It was it was playing on the same riffs that they did in the Jane Silent Bob Strikes Back. Yeah, it was a very similar. It was, a, it was a reboot of that, to be honest. I'm hopeful that more rats won't feel like it's just following the same footsteps again. But um, he said that now that he's finished that script, he's got two more scripts which he's working on, the second of which is Clerks 3 which he's finally going to put the finishing touches on. So the next few years, we're going to see, once he once they can actually start getting into production, we're going to see quite a slew of um, Kevin Smith films coming out. He's, he's currently doing the uh, Master of the Universe, uh, He-Man Master of the Universe series for Netflix at the moment. Yeah. And I would love him to finish some of the comics that he started, especially the one he did about Bullseye, which didn't go anywhere, I think, other than one issue. I'd love to see that. Uh, I've got a bit of news for us uh, here, Andy. Uh, quite close to home for yep. me because this is the job I was working on before lockdown started. I was working on the Hologram Whitney Houston tour and it, of course, got cancelled due to, to the virus. Uh, but there's a Whitney Houston biopic in the works from the writer of Bohemian Rhapsody, initially called I Want to Dance with Somebody. Uh, a lot of the key creatives are involved with making this were involved with the Queen movie. Nobody signed to star yet and nobody signed to direct. But an, an interesting story because she led such a, 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 a troubled life for somebody who was uh, an absolute amazing vocalist, stunning, uh, had a stunning voice. So just interested in that, see what happens and whether we will get that uh, at some point. Cool. Okay, uh, there's uh, quite a few other elements of news to get through, so I'll just rattle off a few before we move on to the, uh, well, one which we're, we want to have a good talk about because we're both quite fans of it for different reasons. Before we get to that, so Johnny Campbell, who directed the BBC One and Netflix recent three-part Dracula miniseries, is helming the adaptation of the sci-fi novel Cold Storage from David Keogh, who's adapted it to the screen himself. Other screens plays that he's done in the past include Jurassic Park and Mission Impossible. Okay. And uh, a bit of news that we didn't get round to saying last week, but is still relevant now, is uh, Scorsese. Um, we reported on his adaptation of Killer of the Flower Moon a good while back, but it's been met with a stumbling block because uh, the director who's responsible for criticising big-scale films for pushing small-scale films out of cinemas is after too high-scale a budget for a studio to consider. 200 million is asking price, which a lot of studios are balked at because whilst he's well-respected and established director, the films that he's proposing aren't getting seen as being huge box office material and 200 million is a huge budget. So he's been doing talks with Apple and Netflix, but at the same time, 
they've been using the making of the film to raise money for charitable organisations during um, this period of coronavirus and lockdowns. Charities such as Meals on Wheels America, No Kid Hungry, um, the filmmakers were in a competition to win a walk-on part in the film spend a full day on sketch with Scorsese, De Niro and DiCaprio, as well as go to the t- premier event. Uh, the fundraising competition is getting done by allinchallenge.com. And it's one of them where however much you donate gives you so many entries and then one winner will come, come from it. It's a, I think it's a great time to like for filmmakers to get involved with like fundraisings and things like that, because we are in a time that people are going to need, charities are going to need that money. Moving on to one that I, I really want us to both talk about which is The Saint. Now, my love of The Saint comes from the, the the fondly remembered 60s Roger Moore TV series. The reruns of that when I was a youth. <laughs> I was a youth once. Um, <laughs> Weren't we all? Long time ago. <laughs> I can fondly remember just about. But obviously, because of his iconic nature as James Bond, the reruns of it on TV in the UK in particular picked up a huge audience. It got a huge following. But this is a franchise that's been around since before Bond. I believe that the book started in like 1928. Yeah, they did. I mean, I've always been a bit of a fan. I've, I've tried reading the books, but they're severely dated. They originally, originally created by Leslie Chatteris. They were hugely successful. There's been, whoa, so many different interpretations of it. Films, radio dramas, comics, uh, several TV series that you mentioned. I mean, the, the first films were 1938. There was a run of films. Yeah. Which, which were that Robin Hood-esque criminal and thief for hire, the saint, like action adventures of the time. Uh, that's right. Yeah, th- there was those. Th- those were the initial I- initial runs. Uh, and you're right. It, it was a very much... Uh, he was a Robin Hood of, of the... Uh, of, of those particular novels. First ones were starring uh, Louise Haywood as, as Simon Templer, the character. And then we got George Sanders. George Sanders, who you're probably best known as the voice of the tiger in the original animated Disney Jungle Book. Nice bit of trivia. He's just, he's got, he's just as one of those, those rich voices. And then the, the saint went on into TV where he was then portrayed by, uh, as you said, Roger Moore. There was the return of the saint with Ian Ogilvie. There was a, a, a guy called Simon Dutton played him in the late eighties. That was, that was like 90, yeah, 89 to 90, wasn't it? There was a, there was a run of, a run of TV movies. I vaguely remember them. And then there was the Val Kilmer movie. Yeah, which was an attempt to really bring it up to date and make it gritty and a bit edgier and relaunch the franchise. And it's not a bad film. It just never found an audience. And I, I genuinely feel that the marketing for it was terrible because you needed to know the saint in order to really be interested with it. I was well well and truly sold into it because I fondly remembered the TV series that I loved as a kid. And at the time, Val Kilmer was quite a name. Yeah, he was, but he was, he was kind of at that point, there was a lot of controversy with him as an actor at that point because he was apparently very, very difficult to work with. <laughs> that was one of the reasons that he didn't continue as Batman, I believe. I might be wrong, but that, that's how I'd heard it. Uh, and and they, they took a lot of liberties with the character. They While while the character in the books and the TV series used disguises, in, in that particular film, they created uh, this idea that he was a master of disguise. So every now and then you got uh, you got Val Kilmer throwing on a, a fake rubber nose and, and, and that sort of thing, which which kind of had a little bit of aspects in, in the character. But that, but that was something in, invented really for, for that particular film. And they also yeah. in, 
they 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 brought together some sort of an origin uh, uh, story for him as well. So who, we've we've got a new saint you've mentioned. What are the plans? Anybody connected to director? Any any cast yet? Dexter Fletcher is going to be directing it. Okay, that's a good choice. Which I, I think is a solid choice. I mean, he's got that kind of style and approach to filmmaking, and not one of his films has been bad so far. So good hopes on there. And uh, Seth Graham Smith is do has been doing the script, and currently the casting rumors have Chris Pine as the front runner for the role of Simon Templar, which controversy there is, should he be British or are we fine with Chris Pine? Yeah, I, th- I think Chris Pine is one of those actors who's, who's just, he's not an ugly looking guy, let's be honest. <laughs> he looks suave. He's got a lot of style. He's got he's got that suave. It, it's funny because, you know, in in the past, in, in in the other TV versions of him, he was being portrayed by Andrew Clark played him, who was an Australian actor. Of course, uh, Val Kilmer was um, uh, American. There was another version that had Adam Rayner playing the part of Simon Templer, who again was a Brit. I prefer him to be a Brit because I can always just see Roger Moore in the role. But if they do something interesting with it, then I think that there's potential to be uh, an interesting franchise. I think the only problem I have with it, they try to get the Saint back many, many times and, it, and it's not always worked. So... I think potentially I would see it better as a series of films going somewhere like straight to Netflix as opposed to a cinema run, because I don't know if that age of, of that kind of character works now. Which would kind of fit with how they tried to revive it in the 80s and 90s, because that wasn't a series. It was six 100-minute TV movies. And yeah, I, I, I think I'm with you on that one. That We've got enough super spies for the big screen. You know, we've yeah. got the Mission Impossible franchise at the... At the running the best that it's ever been as far as i'm concerned it's amazing at the moment and i'm so excited for that franchise continuing we've got bond still on there which we're up you know, eventually we're going to get to see the final outing for daniel craig eventually to some degree we've got the Bourne franchise which keeps having films sporadically but it's also got its spin-off tv series treadstone is it yeah that's just started on um just started on in this country in Amazon Prime. So, you know, with the big screen outings have already got something and the Saints hasn't quite got that recognition factor that the other franchises have had. If anything, I'd compared it to when they attempted to bring The Man From U.N.C.L.E. to the big screen a few years ago. Yes. Yeah, good point. That's a really good point. Because it's remembered by by people who are into cult TV. You know, I I, I didn't dislike The Man From U.N.C.L.E. I thought Guy Richard... I had a lot of fun with it. I, I, and, you know, Dexter Fletcher is very similar in influence to Guy Ritchie and Guy Ritchie did a great job of bringing that to the screen with a good bit of tongue-in-cheek aspect to it yeah he just missed the point slightly it, it was it was a great sort of 60s spy movie and that's I'm so glad they kept it in era <laughs> it just wasn't quite the man from uncle and I think that's always the problem is when you look back it's like when they tried to bring the Lone Ranger back there's only a certain amount of a generation who, who's grown up with it don't you go lock, knocking the Lone Ranger now <laughs> you know my love for the Lone Ranger you and I sat and watched that and you and I were the only, we were the only people I remember singing its praises. I got sent a free copy of that on Blu-ray from um, the rep from Disney simply because he was so pleased he found someone who loved it. Yeah, I don't dislike <laughs> it. I've noticed it's on Disney Plus and I'm waiting to give it another go. I just think that, that there's an audience out there who doesn't know the Saint is and is not recognisable. Yeah. But a series on Netflix as opposed to the uh, opposed to the cinema would work better for me. And, you know, however long this carries on, it might end up going straight to Netflix. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, pretty much everything's going to go straight to Netflix at this rate. But yeah, so that's The Saints. Um, I'm excited. I'm going to keep my eye on this one. I'm going to keep an eye on the casting. If Chris Pine gets it, yeah, I'm all for that. 
like I said, he's got that suaveness to him that I think will work despite the fact that he's not English. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Uh, let's fi- finish off the news with the little nudge in the direction for people who might not have realised, but a lot of your favourite filmmakers are doing Q&As with the audience along their films. If you go on social media and find one of your favourite filmmakers, they are doing viewing times where they will schedule saying at 8pm on this date, we're going to watch this film. And they will live tweet or live Facebook any questions and answers that they can, or they'll just do an audio commentary across it. Zack Snyder did it with his um, Batman versus Superman. And it's a great way to connect with your, fil- your favourite filmmakers. It's a way for them to bring something different to the audience. The, you know, these are things that aren't on your DVDs or Blu-rays as extras. These are actual, you're, you've got a chance to ask them a direct question. Absolutely marvellous. Viewing parties, they're getting called. Okay. And that pretty much wraps up the news for this current week. Moving on, we've got the ongoing thing, which is the Andy hasn't seen. Yeah. Well, before we get to talking about what this week's challenge is, on the whole concept of the Andy hasn't seen, which the whole concept was it's classic Oscar-nominated films or well-regarded films that I've never seen that people like were always shocked with. Then, literally two weeks after our very first talk about them, a certain newspaper in the UK has started a regular feature called The Classic Film I've Never Seen, where their film critics are doing exactly what I'm doing. But is there a Guardian editor somewhere who's listening to this podcast and made notes and went, this is a great idea? It might just be a coincidence, but I like to think that they've stolen my idea. I think they have. If we had solicitors and lawyers who were going to snap at a finger, I know we can have Nelson and Murdoch. <laughs> best lawyers ever. All the fictional lawyers are the best lawyers ever. If they, if the Guardian start doing a neat things every week, that's when we're gonna we're, we're gonna go medieval on them. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've got me on that <laughs> one. I'm ready to go. Last week you challenged me to another one of the films off my I shameful did. letterbox list. I did indeed. Uh, so last week I asked you to watch Flags of Our Father directed by Clint Eastwood, uh, which is a companion piece to Letters from Iwo Jima. Andy, what did you think? Um, well, the, the, I'm quite enamoured overall by war films. I do gravitate towards war films. Bizarrely, these two war films I never got to see. But you told me, like, concentrate on flags of our fathers and not to focus on uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. And the film focuses on the men portrayed in the famous photo by Joe Rosenthal, I believe it was. That's right. The raising the flag on Iwo Jima. The film darts backwards and forth as we discover how the war affected them because it opens up with them in a big celebration and reenacting the raising of the flag because they're going on, like, a voucher drive. Bonds drives. They're getting used to like try to raise more money for the war efforts because of the iconic image and they were taken out of the war themselves. Those post-war aspects focus on each of the characters and how the war actually affected them and how this sudden found publicity and fame that they've got is also impacting on them. Yeah, it's a story about heroism, isn't it? I and mean, it's not just a, a, a look at heroism that's, that's earned, as, as clearly the, these individuals did earn it on, on, on the battlefront, but how it's how it can be manufactured as well. Yeah, and as they're going around doing the bombs drive, you then get flashbacks towards the to all the events on Iwo Jima that led to the raising of the flag and all the incidents surrounding it and like the horrors of war are conveyed in there. And whilst there's some really good, interesting stuff in here, as a war film, 
I feel it's just a bit generic. There's so many other okay. better war films. Admittedly, some of them have come since. I mean, things like um, Hacksaw Ridge is one which is of recent years that tells a similar kind of like impact of war on an individual story, but in a more impactful way but even before this film came out there was like war films that are tackled like the battle itself the horrors of war etc so the actual war elements just feel a bit uh been there done that we've seen okay. saving private ryan we've seen full metal jacket we've seen platoon you're not doing anything different the interesting part of the film is the post-war aspect you see i'll agree with you on that point as well because I, I think that's for me is apart from me it, it does honor those who fought in the Pacific, but it's yeah. that question. It, it it allows itself to question sort of the official versions of the truth uh, and remind us that 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 these guys were just guys going about doing their duty. Yeah. So seeing the effects of them after the war and how they've em- like some of them have embraced it, but then you've got what ones like Corporal Ira Hayes, who's the Native American. That's right. Character who he he wants to be. He didn't want to leave the war. He can't cope with normal life again. And he's going through like alcoholism, post-traumatic stress and absolute, an absolute wreck of a, a shell of a man. And he's the interesting story. And all that post-war stuff is the really interesting meat of it. Unfortunately, by the way that the film jumps backwards and forth, just as you're really getting into the meat of like the post-traumatic aspects, it just thrusts you into a war scene that is just like any war scene that you've seen in any film and kind of breaks the momentum a bit. It's one of them that I wonder if it had been structured more sequentially. way. Yeah. Would it have worked better? Because all the interesting stuff would have been at the back of the back end of the film and left it as like a really good like building and then seeing like how, you know, the build of war. Yay, the joy of war. Da, 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 celebrate like we've managed to take the island and then showing the after effect rather than we're already seeing what impact it's had on them. There's yeah. no point in jumping backwards or forwards anymore. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that as a... As a an interesting well not a criticism you're not criticizing the film as a, as a critique of, of the structure it's the structure kind of let down what was an interesting alternate take to a war film which the alternate take is the post-trauma section we've seen the trauma of war conveyed during the in the battlefield with films like full metal jacket and platoon but we've not we very rarely see the after war things except for things like airborne on the fourth of july which is a great example of like how you tell a post-war impact film i didn't not enjoy it but I didn't enjoy it as much as I expected to enjoy it. I was interested by it. I was caught up in some of the characters, but I felt that it just felt a bit uneven overall as a film. I, I'll go with you with that. It's not one of my favourite Clint Eastwood films. I'd put against that of his recent films, uh, Gran Torino, uh, yeah. Million Dollar Baby. I think think those are stronger films. I think it's interesting what he did and he decided to do a companion piece with Letters from Iwo Jima, which was shot entirely in Japanese and, and yeah. gave gave him the opportunity to give the Japanese perspective on the war, in particular through through the one general that he focuses on. So as a, as a as an interesting experiment in in filmmaking and, and, and a study of the war, I think it's it's one of um, despite the pyrotechnics that that happen in both, I think they're they're very meditative films. And, and and for Eastwood to, to sort of pull back and, and use the meditation of a look a look at war and the effects it has on people's lives. So I applaud it for that. But it wouldn't be up there in my certainly in my, my top ten of, of Clint Eastwood directed movies. Letters from Iwo Jima was in my list as well, so obviously I did delve into that one as well. And that runs more sequentially. There's only like the it's bookended by historians unearthing aspects from the That's caves right. on Iwo Jima. And the rest of the story just 
flows through the whole Battle of Iwo Jima because after the flag was raised, the battle still can- continued. And oh, so absolutely. you get to see, you get, the, I, I find that the Letters from Iwo Jima was more, the more interesting of the two films because it showed that opposing viewpoint. It showed that the villains aren't necessarily all villains. And it yeah. was, you know, it was very respectful in the way it did it. I was, I was quite surprised because I was expecting it to be, you know, oh, well, you know, America's the good guys, yay. But no, it, it just portrays it purely from the Japanese perspective and doesn't convey the US troops as all being perfect and heroes either at the same time. Interesting films to watch. I would recommend people to watch them. I, mean, you know, I recommend people to watch everything that I don't, don't like just to make your own opinion up anyway. But they are interesting films. It is just that Flags of Our Fathers is just... It's just let down by the editing. Okay. Remind me of your list, Andy, and let me know what I can choose for you for next week. Well, we've got quite a good few films within there that I've still got to work through. Amora's Peros, City of God. Uh, yeah, I've got quite a lot of foreign language films in there that I sadly missed. Um, I've also got Finding Neverland Ooh, is in there. Stop right there. Stop your... I'm going to go with Finding Neverland, which I think is an interesting take after what you've been watching over the last, last week. I think... That will be the film I choose because A, it's directed by Mark Forster, who's got an interesting career. He's done Bond films. He's done Oscar winning films. Uh, he's done done horror films. I'd like you to take a look at Finding Very Neverland. Very diverse director. He is. And I'd be interested to see what you think he brings to a historical. Well, it's it's a biopic of sorts. I won't say any more than that because I think you'll be interested okay. to see. So Finding Neverland is your film. For next week okay well that now takes us on to our deep dive as uh, we've got really nothing to to review that's out in the cinemas we're going to look at a, uh, a deep dive we mentioned it last week and that is untouchables al capone the king of the underworld somebody messes with me i'm gonna mess with him elliot ness the leader of the untouchables i have sworn to put this man away four honest men took on an army of crime and swore to bring capone to his knees you wait till the fight's over one guy's left standing and that's how you know who won the untouchables came out in 1987 directed by brandy palmer stars kevin cosner charles martin smith andy garcia robert de niro and of course sean connery what a cast what an absolute cast what a great, great movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've I got a lot of love for this film. This is one that I go back to quite frequently. And when we said that, like, we were going to be talking about it, I didn't need to rewatch it. I've seen it so much that I know so much about it, but I couldn't wait to watch it again. Okay, so just to bring you up to up to date, for those who've not seen it, it's set during the 1930s Prohibition. The reigning kingpin of crime was Al Capone, and he was supplying illegal liquor and has nearly basically the entire city of Chicago under his grip. Bureau of Probation uh, brings in agent, a young Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, who's tasked at bringing a stop to Capone's activities. He's a bit of a Boy Scout. You've got to remember, this is this is the film that really put Kevin Costner on the map. He was up and coming, but this was the film that, that brought him up. So uh, with a chance meeting of a veteran Irish-American officer, Jim Malone, played by Sean Connery, with a, trolley, a truly inappropriate accent, Uh, It doesn't even bother really trying, but that doesn't matter. He puts together a team who were the press of the untouchables because they are the guys who are literally whiter than white and can bring down Capone. It's a fantastic film. Tell me why you love this film. It's got a grandiose nature to it. The direction in it is sumptuous. 
it's it truly conveys the era. I mean, I, I've got a love for this Prohibition era anyway. You throw any gangster-led Prohibition films in my direction and I'm going to lap it up. But this, for me, is like one of the best. And even though it's very fictionalised in the way that it's approaching it, I think that all the cast are really on board with it. They're really throwing everything into it. The sets are amazing i mean there's the hotel sets where like capone is residing and there's the sweeping shots that takes from the newspapers getting dropped at the side of the road someone carrying it through up this flight of stairs all the while whilst a morricone soundtrack is just drawing you along and just conveying the area perfectly because it's a brilliant soundtrack importantly morricone i mean morricone scores are always good anyway but in this the soundtrack itself is a character, and I think it's one of his best ones that he's ever put out. It's one that I will listen to over and over again. I think that there's some great themes in there. The whole film, that, that it's cheesy at points, but it's also brutally harsh at a lot of other points. And it's a sweeping epic tale told of the decline of Capone, basically. I think sweeping is the right word to describe it, Andy, because I think that's what De Palma does with it. His, his camera sweeps throughout the film. He, he was always a very visual director but he, he brings something absolutely uh operatic almost to it uh it, it's, it's an elegant looking film also let's not forget the david mamet who wrote the script it's yeah. it's, an, it's an elegantly efficient script doesn't waste a word it's absolutely spot on all the way through De Palma wears his influences on his sleeve and he's proud of them i mean oh know, his hitchcock the, influences are huge that yeah there's the hitchcock ones and then there's the battleship potemkin influence of the train station uh, finale yeah that shootout is tremendous oh it's it's just beautifully shot beautifully framed and so well paced everything is so well structured and thought out there's not one there's not one loose element of the film that makes you go uh i'm not bothered at that point well, let's talk about the cast, because the cast are interesting. The legend is is that, uh, well, De Niro got the role for Val Capone. And at this point, uh, De Niro wasn't a, a box office name. He was a bit of an outsider in, a, in Hollywood. He, he'd, he'd gone through sort of the independent circuit with Scorsese. So this was a real, a, a, an opportunity to put him in front of a mainstream audience. Of course, he'd, he'd, he'd been lavish with awards for things like Raging Bull at this point. Um, but he, he joined the cast and he, he had to gain about £30 to play Capone. Uh, but originally cast was was Bob Hoskins, which was an <laughs> yeah. interest in the kind of what ifs of movie uh, of movie history. The, the what if of Bob Hoskins playing that role would have been really interesting. There's a little bit of a side story, isn't there, about that? Yeah, the, um, when Hoskins was a, a De Palma's first choice as Capone, but when De Niro took on the role, Hoskins was sent a twenty thousand dollar fee for his services, which resulted in Bob Hoskins phoning up um, De Palma and asking whether he's got any other films that he wants to not cast him in. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you, you have to remember, I mean, people like sneer at the idea of Bob Hoskins being in it, but Bob Hoskins was coming from that kind of like gangsterish, kind of gritty criminal film series. As oh, kind yeah, of the Longest Friday is he, he was a British Capone, isn't so that? He was a hard edged kind of actor at the time. He wasn't Mario, as people unfortunately remember him. Or even, you know, uh, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit proved that he could do the American accent, but yeah. it made him likable. But yeah, you're right. He, People did forget that he came from a hard man background. So, so De, uh, De Niro was fantastic as Capone. He brings menace and he brings gravi gravitas to it. But, but the role of uh, of Elliot Ness now it's always harder playing the hero, especially 
when you're playing against a, a big character like like De, like De Niro. Yeah. And initially, De Palma had wanted Don Johnson to play the role. Uh, Mickey Rourke turned down. Mickey Rourke was up for it as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and Kevin Costner got it. And Kevin Costner wasn't a big name, but this is the film that cemented his career. He he had he was he was building up as a leading man, but this is the one. And he brings that Boy Scout human element to it. He's he's always naturalistic all the way through. Um, he's he, we feel his pain. Um, we see the weight of the world on his shoulders. But he's a man who you can see in his eyes he's doing the right thing. Andy Garcia was at the start of his his career with this as well. Let's not forget him. Oh, it looks so young when you rewatch it. (laughs) And this is the film that that broke him into Hollywood. And of course, there was Sean Connery, who, let's not forget, was actually nominated and won an Oscar for for Best Supporting Actor. Yep. He he plays an Irish cop with a Scottish accent in that same way that Connery plays every character that he ever plays with a Scottish accent, regardless of the nationality. But you don't care because he gives his all through the performance. It's a fantastic performance by Connery. His speeches that he gives are... The mesmerising. And I mean, it helps the the way that the shot and framed also draws you into it. But every word that comes out of his mouth, you're just caught on. You absolutely believe in this character. You absolutely accept it. Um, Small detail that I noticed when watching it this time, which I hadn't really spotted before. I kind of knew, but I hadn't really pieced it together. Two, Two of the untouchables both have a drink and seem to actually enjoy drinking alcohol during prohibition so they are breaking the law themselves those two are the two members of the untouchables who die over the course of the film whereas the two who don't drink through the film don't die oh that's interesting it's uh, charles martin smith Char- charles martin smith's wallace character when it's the canadian border ambush yeah there's one of the barrels is shot and leaking and he looks around to make sure no one's watching before cupping his hands and then taking a sip and then like looking around again like knowing that he's done something wrong he dies. And when Connery's house is being stalked later in the film, you see him go through into his kitchen and he's got a bottle stashed in his oven <laughs> out of sight. So he's he's been, he's been a regular drinker by that one and he knows that he's doing wrong and he dies. But Ness and Stone both live to the end because both of them are the pure cops. And as much as this might just be a coincidence, I, I can't help but think that De Palma deliberately staged it like that because He's he's got that kind of attention to detail that he would put things like this into a film. Interesting. Yeah, I just want to point out one last thing before before we bring this to an end is which is Sean Connery at that point he'd made Bond, but it, he wasn't the big star that he had been. It, it's he wasn't the move movie star that he, he was. He was doing a lot of smaller films. He was doing films like Highlander. We know our love for Highlander, <laughs> but but that's the film that brought him back. That's the film that gave him a, a big second wind of a career. And there's a reason that Sean Connery works in that film is because he's just a movie star. And that's why yeah. it doesn't matter about the accent all the way through. He's a movie star. It's a fantastic film. If you've not had chance to see The Untouchables, it's strangely enough. I, um, hopefully you'll get it. It's on British TV this week. How ironic is that? And I'm <laughs> sure you'll be able to find it on some other streaming platforms. It is a work of brilliance. Okay, so that rounds up our look at The Untouchables. Before we move on to the neat things, I just want to go through two of the films that I've watched over this past week because one of them is a very new film and one of them came out early this year. One's good, one's bad. Oh, tell me more. Tell me more. Before we move on to the neat things, I just want to do a quick roundup of two other films I've seen this week. One which is a brand new film which appeared on Netflix a Spanish film called The Platform. You can watch it 
with dubbed version or go in and watch the subtitled version like I chose because I hate dubbed. The platform, Cracking Film, it's a large tower of levels on which two people share each level. And there's a hole in the middle of the levels where a table with food comes down, stays at that level for about a minute and then goes down. Each day, a table comes down, starts off at the top, lavish food, the most ex- excellent cuisine that you could possibly get. By the time it gets to like level 50, it's only the leftovers that are getting discarded back onto it. Gets down to level 50, there's hardly any scraps. Anywhere lower than that, you're possibly not going to get, have any food. And people stay at the level that they're on for 30 days and then they get switched to a different level and you never know what level you're going to be on or how many levels there actually are. It's a great film with a similar aesthetic to films like Cube where it uses one set but then uses it in creative ways with some quite horrific ways on some of the levels. The social commentary is very heavy in it about how like the upper echelons of society don't care about the people below them, but should the people below them really be cared about because most of them are just analytic, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't feel laboured. And it I was just gripped. Absolutely brilliant film. Well worth checking out. It's on Netflix called The Platform. And secondly, is a film that came out earlier this year, which now has beaten the grudge as being the worst film I've seen this year, and that's Bad Boys for Life. So I'm going to tell you something now. I've seen about the first bit of Bad Boys 1 because I was more attracted to it by Michael Bay directing than I <laughs> wow, was there's some else. words that you never never yeah. thought of here. <laughs> but after after The Rock, I thought Michael Bay was on a winner. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you on that one. I mean, The Rock was a great film, and I actually liked the first Bad Boys. It was the second Bad Boys that was garbage. But never this seen. film. This film makes the second Bad Boys look like a masterpiece. Right from the offset, the film is insulting to the audience. It treats the intelligence of the viewer as though they are five-year-old simpletons with a high-speed chase through the city with Lawrence's character yelling and screaming as though he's never been in a high-speed situation with his partner of the past two decades. And then it switches to a prison break that relies on nobody attempting to administer basic first aid, not even the ambulance crew who appear on the scene, or for half the journey to the hospital, which they would have noticed that the person who they've taken out had no wounds on her because she was the person escaping, not the guard who had been stabbed. Absolutely frustrating. At that point of the film, I realised that the rest of the film wasn't worth bothering to pay too much attention with because the script is basically cliche after cliche with Lawrence just being given lines of and screams and he can't act. This is why he's not been seen on film very much because in this film he's trying to ride on Will Smith's coattails and Will Smith looks so bored with the whole thing. He's clearly just doing it to pay the bills. It's abhorrent. It's an awful film and I never thought I'd say these words but it probably wouldn't have been this bad if Michael Bay had made it. All the people earlier this year were saying, oh, it's the best Bad Boys film out of the trilogy. Really? Really? I beg to differ. It wouldn't even be the best Bad Boys film if it was the only Bad Boys film. It's awful. Rant ends. Okay, so that's about the end of this programme for you. But as ever, uh, Andy and I will check out what has been our neat thing, which is what we've been either watching or reading or, or playing. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? My neat thing this week is a video game. And it's a video game that I've not played yet, but I'm expecting to be spending a lot of time on this weekend because I love the series that it's come from. That's XCOM Chimera that's been released today um, on PC only, I'm afraid. So console owners, you'll just have to suck it up. (laughs) The XCOM series has been around for quite a few decades in one form or another. It came from the way back in the ZX Spectrum days with Rebel Star working the way through to Laser Squad and then XCOM when it gets PC. And it's a turn-based strategy game where you're 
fighting off an alien menace that has taken over the Earth by going through mission, 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 getting experience and funding in order to keep your research going on, to get better weapons, to eventually take down the big hive mothership. And the more recent modern interpretation of it has been quite a cracking game. It has made its way onto consoles, but Chimera as a brand new one like they always do, has come out on PC first. And this is apparently just a mini-game. It's a smaller-scale version of the game. Last time that they did this, it was kind of a way to test the game mechanics for when they announced XCOM 2. So now I'm expecting an announcement for XCOM 3 sometime down the line. But in the meantime, XCOM Chimera is going to be taking over my life this week. You mentioned something to me about the way that you shoot, uh, which is exactly the way that I shoot when I, I play most video games. For some reason, I have a terrible sense of aim. You can have a squaddy with like a 92% hit chance and you could stand in front of an, an alien go fully auto with your weapon in front of him and miss with every shot. Yeah, sounds like That's me. That's the kind of game mechanics that I love. <laughs> uh, my neat thing, well, I've got a growing pile of books next to the bed that I keep meaning to to get into, but I'm a great fan, as you know, I'm a great comics fan, but I'm a great fan of Comicsology, which is the uh, uh, online uh, comic store. And their way of reading comics uh, on an iPad is absolutely fantastic, the way that you can you literally move and go through each panel. Over the last couple of weeks, they've been giving away a load of, of free books. And some of those free books have just been absolute classics, including one of the best run on the Avengers ever, which was Roy Thomas, Neil Adams and John Bessemer of the Kree's uh, Cruel War. Not just sort of your your, your bog standard oh, one issue jobs. They've been giving away some absolutely fantastic prime uh, graphic novels and collections. I've also been using the opportunity to catch up with Hellblazer, which is the character created originally by Alan Moore in Swamp Thing, John Constantine. Uh, I've started with book one written by Jamie Delano. I'm now up to Andy Diggle's run. And boy, this is not just a great horror series, but just great character building because Constantine ages in real time. So as we started off almost nearly 10 years ago, where I'm up to, the, the characters developed uh, just a fantastic series. J.J. Abrahams has announced that he's going to do Dark Justice, which was kind of the supernatural Justice League. Did you ever read that, Andy? I've never read Dark Justice, no. But I'm very interested to see, because it's been in development like, to get a Dark Justice on the screen, big or small, for quite a while now. So I'm interested to see what happens with it. Yeah, Guillermo del Toro was connected to it at one point as a movie, but now it looks like it's going to HBO Max. Uh, John Constantine, Swamp Thing, Dead Man. Really looking forward to that. If they can capture the character, because I don't think the character's been done full justice yet of John Constantine. So, so that's my neat thing is Comixology and Hellblazer. And that's it for another show for this week. Uh, hope you're enjoying your isolation. We want you to stay safe out there. We'll be back in a, another week, won't we, Andy? Yeah, hopefully within the next week. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, contact us on our Twitter stream at Filmfile UK. Ask us any questions. Suggest some films for us to watch. Tell us what you're doing during lockdown. And remember, you get further with a nice word and a gun than just a nice word. 